Welcome to Social Steps, a series of episodes with people from around the world who are creating positive change and social impact. I am Luis Guilherme, and today your guest is Francisca Sassetti, who is a research analyst in the United Kingdom. Francisca Sassetti is currently a PhD candidate at the Royal Holloway University of London, where she is studying the need for human rights-based approach to artificial intelligence. In 2020, Francisca Sassetti won the political best paper given by the International Association of Political Science Students. Her professional and academic career have been developing in a cosmopolitan context, and she spent years working and researching in Europe and Asia. Apart from publications in prestigious peer-reviewed journals, she has exhibited unwavering commitment to technology, human rights, and political science, and connecting them to her professional work. Francisca, thank you very much for your attention. To begin, could you introduce yourself? What and where you studied? And how did you become interested in researching and working in the area of migration, modern slavery, and technology? Thank you, Luis, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. So excited to be here. My name is Francisca Sassetti. I am from Portugal. I lived in the UK for over five years now. And I have studied political science in Portugal at the University of Lisbon. And I also studied comparative politics at the London School of Economics in London, um, which is surprising why I moved into a more international development um, type of work at the moment, particularly because I come from a social sciences background and I worked, I work in research on areas more connected to technology. Um, and so, you know, it has been, I would say, quite an interesting journey and you know, I think the, the key is really to always be open to learning. And um, and I guess for me, um, having been an immigrant myself with all the priv privilege that I have as a migrant as well, um, I became really passionate initially about human and labor rights. Because when I initially came to the UK, um, I came with lots of dreams that I was going to study at a, a prestigious university and get a fantastic job. But initially when I arrived, I only had, um, I would say, low paid and jobs working uh, waiting for me. And at the time, I actually worked without a contract and I experienced what's like to work as a, um, you know, low paid migrant worker and in a way being treated like one, um, being discriminated because you have an accent, because you don't speak English very well and, you know, feeling like you're experience from another country is not valid because it's from another country, um, particularly non-English speaking country, I think. Um, and I think that's how I got really interested into migration and uh, labor rights. And, you know, the fact that I were able to, I was able to stand up to some of the situations that I experienced and uh, understanding, drawing a line where I find it is, that is acceptable, what isn't. Um, and I think that's where it links with some forms of exploitation or being passionate about um, why are migrants more exploited and more vulnerable to exploitation than others. Um, and obviously, as I said, as a more privileged migrant, I was able to leave that cycle um, of low-paid work and be where I am today, uh, working as a research analyst at Work Free, the leading organization in ending modern slavery and the producer of the Global Slavery Index. I'm also a current PhD student at Royal Hallway and at the University of London, 
um, and as part of the UNESCO ICT uh, 4D chair. Um, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's incredible that five years ago, looking back, the person that I was, that I was just looking, you know, passionate about, very passionate about making a change, wanting to, you know, uh, feel like I was trying to find my place in the world and what, how I could best contribute, but still, you know, I felt like I was missing some essential tools and definitely studying, learning English, you know, investing in languages and all those skills really helped me, I think, get to where I am today. Um, and after my my master's degree at LSE, I got this opportunity to go uh, to work for the United Nations at an anti-trafficking intervention. Um, and what I liked liked about it was the fact that I was able to work on something that was some of the most extreme forms of exploitation that I was not very familiar with. So I was able to learn a lot. But the the catch is that this job came with some um came with a big component in terms of technology so i would be working on um helping to refine and test a, te- interve- a technological intervention um to be tested on the field in south asia and you know for someone who comes from social sciences i would have not known anything about it um if it wasn't for when i when i was working in london i actually trained myself as a, to become a programmer because I was looking for a job and, you know, working in IT pays well. And so to able to afford my fees, that's when I started to learn programming, particularly front-end programming. Um, although I will say I'm still not, not, still not the best coder. I think that was, it, it helped me not be so scared and, um, and be more of, te- of technology and more um, technical sciences and technical skills. And, and that, to me, unlocked a lot of um, skills in terms of quantitative analysis skills, and that's how I got so much, so passionate and into research. Um, you know, and so sometimes there are things in your life that happen to you. You can have, you know, things you can have from bad experiences or difficult experiences. You can try to make the best out of it and still take a positive lesson forward. And for me, was in some cases standing up for what I thought was what I believed and what I thought it was. Um, was decent work and making sure that I could stand up for the people that worked with me as well. There was a job where I got actually fired because we were not being paid the 50p per hour that we deserve to be. And I was let go. And, but I, when I left, you know, we all got that 50p extra per hour. It might not make a difference to a lot of people, but for migrant workers who come here to save up and to potentially use that money to study, it makes a world of difference. Um, and so I think that's how I, how I basically got into um, working in section of migration, labor rights, human rights, but also the potential for technology to um, to do good. And maybe we can get into this a bit later on. Francisca, you mentioned that you are you you attended London School of Economics, and you are studying. You are currently studying at the Royal Holloway University of London, two universities where I receive many students, international students, every year. Traditionally, you are working in a multicultural, multicultural atmosphere. How did, how did studying and working in these international environments change you as a person? Well, I think, well, first, I think we always, we always change from all over the experiences, but I do think that working in studying and working in these international, very multicultural, international, diverse environments have profoundly changed who 
who I am and um, how I and you know how I the, my perspective and posture in life and the kind of work that I do. And I'll just say that um, as you, I think, particularly because you know we our view of the world and of other people is pretty much shaped by our social, our bringing social um, environment, background, education. Um, and, you know, and being from Portugal, being from Western Europe, uh, being an European, our vision of the world is constructed, I think, in a way uh, where we, we think we are the, the center of the world, in a sense, right? Very Eurocentric view. Uh, the outside world is a dangerous place, in that sense. That's what gets through us to meet the media. Um, and, we, you know, we basically follow the right way to do things. You know, that's, um, that's why we import, you know, the European approach for many things. Um, and I, you know, when I started to contact with people from different cultures, different countries, different backgrounds from around the world, I started to realize actually that I was completely wrong and started to challenge a lot of my beliefs. And I think as an European, decolonizing your knowledge in that sense, your beliefs, challenging your beliefs, challenging these social constructs that you have from media, from your education, from what's in your history books, um, is really, really important because otherwise you're not really taking other people seriously. For example, at LSE, I think I was one of the only European people in my class. Um, there was a couple of people that were from Northern America. Um, and so, you know, I, I had colleagues from uh, the Middle East, from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, from Latin America, from different countries across Asia. Um, and, you know, I thought there was, and it was incredible because although at off times I felt a bit uncomfortable that I, how, you know, how ignorant I was about different, how, where, you know, the countries, people, uh, the countries where these people came from, uh, their political systems, cultural, social norms, even foods, you know, I had so many preconceptions that, you know, as a European, you gain, you know, for example, um, even the Chinese food that we eat in uh, Portugal is very standardized and you find the same type of food across the country because it's adapted to Portuguese and European taste. But when I had the chance to live in Macau um, and I was able to eat, thanks to my friend Chin, who taught me how to order in Mandarin and uh, eat in local uh, restaurants, I was able to have a completely different perspective of what Chinese food looks like and tastes like. And it's so different. Um, I learned what black chicken was, which I had no idea of. Um, you know, and so I just think being at LSU, for example, I had my first friends from some of the, some, some of, and you know, with some of the most incredible stories, there was this person that I met, I respect so much from uh, Palestine. Um, and I had never met anyone from Palestine. Palestine. I met someone from Israel and it was the first time, you know, I always been maybe very one-sided on the, uh, you know, Palestine-Israel um, conflict. And, um, and I think that helped me get a more balanced view and understand maybe the plight of Palestinians. Um, and, I, I, you know, these experiences have profoundly changed who I am as a human because I've started to, first of all, have much more empathy for others, start to see things from other people's eyes and stories. And also I b became much more educated about what people... Um, what people um, go through, what do people, how do people live like in other in different countries, 
and also celebrate what is so great about different cultures instead of imposing a bit of the European way. European way. And I don't mean to speak up on behalf of all Portuguese or Europeans in any way, but I do think there is this complex and almost um, some arrogance about being from where you are, in from someone from my upbringing, and uh, you know, and you know, leaving having some more humility, accepting difference, and learning from others. You just are able to travel the world often without you know, in a single conversation with a friend or someone you just met, and that's how you. Um, and then you start to research and you start to learn and you just become someone much more connected and appreciative about the world that we have and uh, what more we can do to make it much better and nicer, inclusive and fairer for everyone and more tolerant. And I think, and then you take that knowledge and you talk to that to, about your friend, to your friends about it or your family. Um, and they'll learn too and they'll talk to other people. And I think this is just like an endless chain of empathy, knowledge. Uh, breaking and decolonizing knowledge and stereotypes, breaking stereotypes, um, you know, and I think that's what really inspired me to think that I want to put my skills, my experience and my passion to serve um, the most advantaged and vulnerable people in, in this world that did not come from the privileged background that I had and the privileged standpoint I have today over the world. And have the humility to learn from their perspectives. I would just end by saying that in research, um, one of the big issues I think doing of Western research is this very imposing views of the as we, you know, first of all, treating others as a research object when actually a migrant is a research expert. They have, in a sense, they are the experts on the topic. A survivor of modern slavery exploitation is an expert on the topic. They have experienced it. Instead of going with it, a, an imposing attitude of, I am the researcher, I know it all, I will extract this information from you, um, I don't think it's the right attitude to have. That's why I think we need to have more participatory approaches and to center people's experiences at, you know, at the core of everything that we do. And that's something I try to do, try my best to do in everything that I do. Um, and I really believe, believe in this. And I think, you know, Having the voices of those with lived experiences, those there are the people we want to, you know, people that we're trying to help with an intervention or a program or, or with research or a policy at, what, at the center of what we're doing is the best way to make sure they are effective because they are based on real needs and real voices. And I think, I think this is the way we move forward for a kinder, fairer society, given how much inequality and, you know, hatred there is out there. You were currently a PhD candidate at the Royal Holloway University of London. In parallel, you are working as a research analyst in the job market. So I imagine you deal with several areas of knowledge in your routine. So Francisca, what is a typical day for you? Wow. Well, no day is the same as a researcher. So as a research analyst at Walk Free, uh, so particularly in the, I would say, non-profit. Um, a, day, a typical day can look like, um, for example, there's a lot of, can be a lot of reading involved. So you always 
I always uh, try to be up to date with what's happening around the world, what's happening in the field, what's new. So I'm subscribed to different newsletters. Um, I before I uh, even before I start working, I already screen through some of the newest um, reports or. Uh, papers that might be on the area and that's you know can even be announcements or updates on legislation and that really helps me to understand you know anything's changing because part of the research work of, of the research work in this area is trying to just trying to always be up to date with what's what's happening uh, so that you can use that in your own work um and then you know obviously there's lots of emails that i sometimes some days i have a lot of emails to answer um and the day can go in different ways uh, so working for um organization like Walk Free, where we um, do collection data collection for the Global Slavery Index, for example, a day can be spent just doing data collection where I, uh, I'm checking different data sources uh, and then I have to do some triangulation and then I make decisions on the data that we select and we keep. Um, at other days can be more about, you know, once we have a piece of research that we finished, we can... Um, we, we organize events with different stakeholders. For example, recently, we finished a report about on the financial sector and modern survey in the financial sector. Um, and, you know, one, one of uh, some of my days were spent just setting up this event, sending out invitations, um, and um, which was very interesting. And, and then now following up after the event to see what else we can do, how we can keep using our uh, brilliant findings and, um, and hard, uh, hard-earned findings uh, to get our message across and to just try to make some changes, and uh, and so it you know it can be a lot in a day. Other days it can be there's a lot more um, of meeting new people, people reaching out to to us to for potential collaboration, and so we're always open to talking to new people or learning about new projects and ideas. Um, so no day is the same. Some days can be just about writing up, and uh, at Walk Free or for example previously at the United Nations University Institute in Macau. When I was a research assistant, uh, some days we just have to, you know, after you do the data analysis, it's about um, writing up a paper or um, turning a paper into a more um, into a product for a different audience, like a policy brief, something shorter and snappier for a different audience, uh, or writing a more like a digestible um, op, um, opinion article for another platform. So it can be a lot of things, and of of course, um, if you're doing work direct primary research. It can be that you're also conducting interviews as part of your work or you're doing some kind of field work. And I actually had that opportunity um, in um, March 2019 where I, um, as part of the project with the United Nations University Institute in Macau, uh, while testing the mobile application Prize uh, developed by Dr. Hannah Tignane, I got to visit um, factories and test the application and interview workers, which was a, um, I think, a very unique experience and so no day is the same um no day is the same it's also a very creative job but at the same time there's also a uh, project management there's also a lot of a um, uh, good time management and i think above all just um working as a team is i think is just really really important and really making use of your analytical skills um, across everything that you do as a PhD, maybe I didn't mention, but as a PhD, what do you do as a PhD? Uh, depends where you are in your PhD. Currently, what I'm doing is just working on my literature review. I only started my PhD five months ago, so when I'm when I'm dedicating a day to my PhD, what I that usually looks like screening through different articles. I try to um, 
be critical about what I'm reading and contrast different ideas, writing down. I think the best advice I can give for anyone that is doing a PG or thinking what a PG looks like is just basically some, some you know, I, I can sum it up in one thing, which is I have this diary, PG diary and I write all my ideas and kind of thoughts into it. And that's my, you know, that's where I have everything. So that's my PG at the moment in these early stages. So it's basically writing in my PG diary, writing ideas, and sometimes meeting new people, which is, and attending conferences, writing papers together. Francisca, at this moment, I ask to my guests to tell about myths or misconceptions in their professional positions. What is the biggest myth or mis misconception about your work and within your area of expertise? May you, clar may you clarify it? Mm. Thank you. That is a really good question. I would say the first thing I say when I work in, you know, in the intersection of migration technology or modern slavery, um, the first the first thing I hear is that people say, "Oh, slavery still exists," you know, and people people are a bit shocked. No, that's a thing of the past. You know, sl slavery has been abolished, um, but actually, no, it's um, it still exists. Um, we might have abolished a more historical institutionalized slavery, but In the world today, there are still there's an estimate of 40.3 million people living in some form of modern slavery. And when I say modern slavery, I mean I don't mean chained people. That's um, you know that's that's not the image of a, what a what modern slavery might look like today. Um, uh, modern slavery is really just an umbrella term that encompasses the most extreme force, um, forms of exploitation, and that in can include forced marriage. Um, that can also child and uh, forced marriage. That can include human trafficking. That can also include forced labor. Um, and there's many ways. Um, if we consider exploitation as a continuum, where we can, you know, minor forms of labor exploitation or sexual exploitation can evolve into more serious forms of exploitation. Um, you know, and for example, uh, the international labor organizations indicators of labor exploitation. Sorry, of forced labor. Um, include things like deception or overtime or unpaid overtime. And that's because when these indicators are aggravated, they can lead to much worse forms and potentially forced labor. Um, and I think this is something I've, I think this is a, something I battle on a daily basis is that people just don't have, just people are just not aware that it's happening. But I do think that's changing. And I think that we, you know, In our own communities, countries, I think people start to be more aware that um, this overexploitation exists. And, um, you know, even, for example, in Portugal, a country where no, the government doesn't believe there is any sort of modern slavery. Um, just, a, you know, just recently, there was a case of extreme labor exploitation in a region in South Portugal. Um, and now people are talking about potentially the term modern slavery. And this is... In a way, it's very tragic, but it's also very positive in the sense that it's great that because it's, it's, this is happening, people are now finally talking about it and just having this transparency is so important. So I would say that's, that's, that's a big uh, misconception about the, the type of work that I do or how, for example, migration and modern slavery are intersected. Um, this, and in my field, I would say one of the biggest myths that is, is 
maybe more linked to technology is that if you come from a social sciences or humanities background, um, you know, can you really work in tech or in more technical sciences? And the answer is yes, you can, because I'm the living proof that even if you don't have applied mathematics, you can still do great quantitative analysis and learn how to um, get on the good side of, you know, digital technology. You can learn how to, um, you ha can learn how to program. You can learn how to test and you can learn how it works so you can understand some of the implications uh, of the research that you do and how to integrate that in the work that you do. And because I want to be really encouraging to everyone that if I can do it, anyone can do it. Um, and I just think in a, in a time where, at a time where we really need more interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary approaches to understanding the complex world we live in, you know, there needs to be uh, more union and more cross, uh, cross-referencing between these different sciences. And I think social scientists and humanity, hum humanity scientists should not be scared of digging into more technical sciences and even quantitative skills. It's very interesting to emphasize this point, Francisca, because here in Brazil, not only in Brazil, I imagine it's happening in, in several countries around the world, um, especially to see people who are creating uh, startups. You can see they don't require, uh, for example, a coder who graduated in mathematics or statistics or computer sciences. So I think if you, for example, you are studying law, it's my case, or if you study at uh, philosophy, for example, but you are interested in learning coding, um, yes, you can get a job, you can uh, explore other fields of work. So uh, very interesting. Um, and speaking of knowledge, uh, Francisca, which books, documentaries, animations, or and or or movies inspire you to work in technology, migration, and modern slavery, and why? Um, that's that's a really well. That's a difficult question because there's so much out there. I would say um, that I think to work in this area, you need to find. I think is I think to be honest, to me, it was about finding the motivation. And once you get into the um, migration, modern slavery uh, field, you start to understand why it's so important. And obviously, there's so many other important areas to work in. Uh, and so I don't mean to diminish them by, by saying this. But I do think there's a lot of things that can help you identify uh, some of this, identify understand some of these issues, how they exist in the world we live in, how, we, how they how they. Um, how they affect us and how are we in some way complicit with them. So I would suggest two, two, one book, first one book that I love, which is called Factory Girls. Actually, I have it in front of me. I know you can't see it, but I will show it to Louise. And um, I love this book. It's called Factory Girls, Voices from the Heart of Modern China by Leslie T. Cheng. And what I love about this book is that, first of all, it's not a too very academic book, but it's about the accounts of a journalist who actually met with many migrant, female migrant workers um, in China who are internal migrants um, and who work on these factories. And, you know, and their life basically is spent inside of these factories. What I love, and it's interesting because I read the book and then I had the opportunity, as I mentioned, 
to travel to, to Thailand and meet very similarly women in their 1920s, early 20s who do this for a living, you know, who, who will work on the, in these factories for the next 20, 30 years um, and, you know, working extremely long hours, you know, and to me, in a way, wasting their youth, you know, and I did find a lot of things that were in the book that I came across in real life, um, you know, and I, and I thought it was really powerful. It just um, shows you, it, you know, it talks about some of the struggles with migration, why people migrate, what often awaits them when they migrate, the promises that are made in the deception, and also how people can become trapped in very exploitative situations. So I would say this book is really powerful if you don't want to start with something too academic in the beginning. If I had to recommend a documentary or a film, I would recommend True Cost. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it. True, the True Cost is a documentary from 2015 and essentially talks about the real price of our clothes, the clothes that we buy and wear. Um, and why I think this documentary is very interesting and important to watch is um, I think now, as I said, there's more awareness of the social impact of our choices as consumers and environmental impact as well. But the social impacts, particularly the human rights impacts of a lot of the, the choices we made, make as a consumers from the fruit that we buy, um, you know, the fruit that we buy, um, the beauty products we buy because of palm oil or the clothes that we buy because they are made with cotton and, you know, one in every five cotton products in the world are sourced from forced labor camps in Xinjiang, China, um, according to um, um, too many um, organizations. And, you know, this is documented, this um, the, the human rights violations against um, Uyghur, the Uyghur um, ethnic minority in China are well documented. Um, you know, and I, I think this doc, this this documentary, although it's not specifically about this case, it just shine it does shine a light on how a piece of clothing that we wear um, has a life cycle that we can't even imagine. From the even before it gets to the shelf where we picked it on, or how we, when we order it online in a virtual shelf, uh, from the materials used, um, the 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 raw materials used. Um, to make the product uh, from the ink, then the, the process in the ink that is used. And I've seen how uh, some of those products are very dangerous chemicals. They have to be handled by hand and they can be really dangerous for workers. Um, so for example, particularly when you have uh, jeans and they have that kind of washed out bit um, in the legs, uh, like a bit whitened bit in the legs, that's a very dangerous chemical, for example, and it has to be handled by hand, you know, and that can leave you with really um, dangerous burns and even worse. And so I think this documentary really shows, um, helps you helps you connect with you as a consumer and what are you complicit in? Because the truth is, I don't think it's right to blame the consumer um, about modern slavery through um, the products that you buy and consume because you know, because brands are the ones who should be more transparent about how they source products, how they produce them, and the conditions in the supply chains. And so I will say these two things, two resources, um, can be really, really interesting, really helpful. Uh, I also think they can be very captivating, so I think that's necessary. You know, you don't want to start with a uh, extremely abstract papers on, uh, and but, you know, there's a lot of good academic research as, uh, as well back there, uh, you know, um, 
out there uh, to search. And, you know, the Global Slavery Index is a great resource for you to understand how prevalent modern slavery is and the type of products that are more high risk and what industries and how that varies per country and what governments around the world are doing about it. And so I would I say there's two things. I don't want to take much longer, but I think, I think, you know, if we look closely, you know, um, this is something that affects us, you know, and if we're not responsible consumers, if we don't ask questions, if we don't ask things like who made my clothes, um, you know, we are not being res- as responsible and, you know, we're turning a blind eye to something uh, that, you know, that could have been us, something that we make worse because we keep investing with our money when we buy a product, trusting these companies who have horrible uh, human rights and labor rights, expo- uh, you know, violations and modern slavery instances, instances in their supply chains. Um, yeah. For those who are interested in, in these recommendations uh, mentioned by Francisca, I will write down in the description of this episode the book and the documentary. Francisca, let's imagine someone who is listening to us wants to work in technology, immigration, and modern slavery. Which suggestions would you give to that person? For example, what skills uh, would would it be good to improve? Would you suggest a particular book or, or documentary? Um, thank you, Luis. I think that's a you know that's also a difficult question, but I think I'll I'll give my best to to answer. And you know, by no means this is the you know this is um, these are the all the right things you should do. But this is what I might recommend in my in my very humble opinion. Um, you know, start somewhere. You don't have to start. You might already have some experience in a very different field. And uh, I've actually had a lot of people coming to me, messaging me when they met me to say, oh, I also want to change to work in what you're doing. Um, how do I do that? Uh, do I quit my job and find a new job? And I, well, there's many ways you can, in, you can get into the migration technology or modern slavery fields. Um, a way to do that is you can start by making changes already where you are. So let's say, for example, you work in a bank or you work, you know, or a um, financial sector company or you work in a food processing company. For example, you know, you can start by asking questions about sustainability, about, um, for example, you can, you know, you can take an active interest in these topics and how, Uh, for example, technology, you can ask about how about data privacy, you can ask about um, some of the ethical aspects of the way the company is using technology or is protecting people's information and GDPR compliance. You know, so there's a lot of a lot of things you can do in terms of migration. You can always ask questions about how inclusive and diverse the workforce is. Um, is there a sense of belonging in my organization? Do people from different backgrounds or minority groups feel empowered to say something? Would they be able to report on something exploitative? And so you don't have to completely change where you are to be able to already get into this area. You know, that that's one thing I would say. Wherever you are, you can already do something. I know that. Um, but there's many other ways if you want to move out to. So you can work on this area through trade unions, NGOs, um, foundations, think tanks, research institutions, academia, Uh, private sector and businesses, but also from government, governmental agencies and bodies. There's just a lot that you you could work in. Um, I think 
the thing I would recommend the most is just reach out. Don't be a stranger. Contact people on LinkedIn. That's actually how Louise and I met. He randomly added me on LinkedIn and it was the most uh, uh, wonderful experience I've ever had because it gave me the ability to be shameless enough to do that with other people. And that allowed me to expand my network uh, and meet some really incredible humans that I've learned a lot from. And I think that's what we can do. And if the pandemic has showed us something, is that how, um, you know, it's just just how switching to a more uh, home, remote working, this need for human connection and people's help, how more open people are to this kind of... um, requests and so don't be a stranger don't feel scared to reach out and to ask how did you get to that position where you are uh, another thing i've done that i think it can be useful is you can say wow i this person is really inspiring i love to do what they're doing okay so take some time to understand exactly how they got there what kind of experiences they had what kind of skills do you think that person would need you can try to also find the job for example description if you want to be much more precise uh, objective you can try to find their job, um, the current job title, and try to match it with existing ads and try to understand what are the skills being required for that type of position and then make your own plan. How can I get there? And so I would say definitely analytical skills are very important. And do not be intimidated by this if you are from a humanities or social sciences background because this is something anyone can develop and work on. Um, I think that's some of my biggest really some of my biggest recommendations that worked for me, but really talking to other people opens up uh, worlds, a whole endless world of opportunities and knowledge. And is how you find out about new theories and ideas and opportunity and jobs and events. Um, and that's, I think the most uh, valuable thing I think I could ever uh, tell someone um, to do. And I learned that with Luis. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you for, Mention on this point, uh, Francisca, and I like to highlight um, LinkedIn. I, I, I always say to my friends, uh, including you, <laughs> that LinkedIn is a social network. So it's not only a place where you look for jobs. It's a place where you look for um, partnerships. Um, you look for people who share similar interests. So um, I think it, the people have to, to see, to consider Uh, LinkedIn as a social network. To finish this episode, uh, Francisca, if you could press restart, what do you do say to yourself when you began? your professional path wow that's a that's a that's a that's a, an impossible question um i there might there were times where i felt very disappointed helpless frustrated like i was not gonna go get you know get anywhere um when things felt really a bit too hard um but i think something i always told myself is i would have told myself is Believe in yourself. You know, if you don't believe in yourself, no one else will. No one's going to come to you and say, hey, you were amazing. Come and do this. No. Um, you believe in yourself. It's just so important. And lacking yourself is, is you know, is important so that others, you know, others can like you. If you don't, you know, unless you, 
unless you like yourself and um but also be self-critical i think there's times where i've um looking back where i was maybe went a bit too far and um with some of the things i wanted to do and i i I was I got ahead of myself, you know. I thought I always know it all. I already knew everything, and maybe having the humility, if I could go back, I would tell myself, you know, be a bit more humble um, in some of the in some of the situations that you're going to go through. But on the worst moments where it feels like nothing's going to work, you know, I had really difficult situations where I thought I'm not going to have money to go and study anything. You know, I'm going to drop out um, when I was at LSE or I, you know. For example, even during the time I was at the United Nations in Macau, and even now, uh, I, you know, like a lot of people, I have a very serious case of uh, imposter syndrome. And so telling myself, and I think that has, in a way, limited me in doing a lot of things years ago. Um, So just tell yourself, you know, if you believe in yourself, but also if you believe in yourself, you know, don't then betray yourself and uh, feel like a fraud. If you have been accepted into a job or position, if you've been given an opportunity, it's because people also see something in you, you know, so don't be the one questioning yourself. Um, That's what I would tell myself. I actually often felt very inadequate. And I can tell you this, uh, it's difficult when you come from a a non-English speaking country, when you are a migrant and you move to a different country. And I know I'm a very privileged migrant in that sense. despite some of the uh, less pleasant experiences I had. Um, you know, you doubt yourself a lot. You feel like you don't belong. Uh, you feel like things are not going to work out for you. And I often felt, you know, this is all pointless. I made a mistake. Uh, but, you know, remaining hopeful is really important. And to think, you know, this is just a bad day or a bad time. It's not always going to be like this, right? And so when things, when you feel like, oh, why am I not learning this fast enough? It took me a lot of time to understand maybe, um, the pro, um, the programming language language I the first one I learned which was JavaScript, but I just wasn't used to that kind of um, language and uh, you know it was very abstract to me in my head and for some people it's just so obvious and I felt very inadequate and so no you know don't give up uh, I would have you know I would have told myself don't give up um, and uh, that feeling of inadequacy you will always feel it where you are in your life if you are a migrant I think you feel it much more often especially because how amazing is it that we're able to communicate, Louise and, you know, you and me, Louise, that we, given this is not our first language, um, you know, and, um, but so get over your own feelings of inadequacy and imposter syndrome, believe in yourself. I wish I had some, someone telling me these things years ago um, when things felt a bit grim, but I'm, I'm happy that I get to share this now with everyone. And, you know, as I tell, to, to tell Louise and other people, if I can ever help you with anything, you know, do reach out to me, honestly, is I think to me is um, really important to help others away in a way I was helped along the way to get where I am now and to leave some very more challenging times in my life and situations. I would like to thank you again for joining us today, Francisco. I feel very honored to have this great conversation and to have this opportunity to ask you the questions and hear your stories. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
Recommend this podcast for your friends and if you speak Portuguese, don't forget to check Green Steps, my another podcast where I speak with environmentalists from Brazil. You can find the entire series of on my personal website, luisguilhermeandmel.com, whose link you can find in the description of this episode. And in the next month, we will have another conversation.